0: So, the other day, Colborn reads this lengthy document written up by Mark Andreessen, a billionaire and the founder of the investment firm A16Z, called The Techno-Optimist Manifesto. It's a sprawling text on the ethos of techno-optimism as a philosophy, and goes into much detail about the various parts of our lives that techno-optimism touches. Now, you don't need to be a philosophy major to understand this manifesto, because I'm not, and I understood it. And just as it made a real dent in Colborn, it made one in me. Not meaning we disagreed or agreed with its many, many, many points, but well, listen to the episode and you'll see what I mean. Colborne reached out the other day and was like, Max, we have got to discuss this on the podcast today. So that's exactly what we did. We read the manifesto, we internalized and referenced a lot of its specific points, and we ended up having this great conversation about the future, obviously, about markets and centralized power, about Bitcoin, but also most elaborately about love, love as expressiveness, love as culture, love as shared suffering, love as the fundamental experience of being human and how it scales, how it manifests, which as a talking point came as a bit of a shock to me. You'll notice that this episode doesn't totally grapple with crypto art, but I'm starting to see crypto art less and less as an isolated entity and more and more as a kind of collective downstream product. Meaning, crypto art is a many-fanged and multifaceted product of economics and superculture, the internet and world politics, all sorts of individualized human experiences. It's an unruly and enormous thing influenced by so many other isolated areas of our lives, and so I think it's vital to have these kinds of unruly, enormous, pessimistic at times, yes, but ultimately hopeful and soulful kinds of conversations about it. I don't know if you'll come to understand crypto art itself better after this podcast, but you may come to better understand other things which, who knows, might just seep down into your soul and express itself in the art that you like, that you make, that you collect, that you attach yourself to. This is the episode of Mocha Live I will be showing to any future interested parties. We're thrilled to have you along for the ride, and it is a ride, on this week's Mocha Live podcast. Good evening, everybody. It is 5.01 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here in Brooklyn, New York. This is the Mocha Live podcast. My name is Max Cohen. I will be one of your hosts for the Mocha Live podcast today. And joining me as he does every week is our trusty co-host, founder of the Museum of CryptoArt, all-around great guy, Colborne Bell. Colborne, what's up? What's up
1: with you? It's good to be here.
0: Yeah, man. it's We haven't done one of these, just the two of us in a long time, throwing it back to our earliest days. I'm really excited for this topic. I'm really excited to just be here shooting the shit with you. We were on a couple of days ago recording a current events podcast, and we were talking a lot about like economics. And boy, you were just a happy camper to talk about like economics and kind of the greater, I don't know, greater economic trends that surround crypto art. And we wanted to talk about something within that kind of vein today. Um, you sent me an article that recently came out, I believe, uh, from Mark Andreessen, who is the principal and founder, I believe, of A16Z, this you know enormous capital deployment fund that has its hand in a lot of stuff in crypto and especially in crypto art. And the document was called the Techno Optimist Manifesto, which says in so many words uh, that humanity's salvation lies exclusively in the unleashed and unparalleled and unmitigated advancement of technology. Yeah, Colborn is praying already at the altar of technology. Um, and we kind of wanted to discuss the idea of techno optimism as like detailed in this document, but also as it expresses itself in like a real-world empirical way. So just to begin with, I think the crux of Andreessen's argument. Uh, about what a techno-optimist actually is. And this is a quote from the document itself. Techno-optimists believe that societies like sharks grow or die. We believe growth is progress leading to vitality, expansion of life, increasing knowledge, higher well-being. We agree with Paul Collier when he says, economic growth is not a cure-all, but lack of growth is a kill-all. We believe everything good is downstream of growth. We believe not growing is stagnation, which leads to zero-sum thinking, internal fighting, degradation, collapse, and ultimately death, which is pretty... Harsh. And then he goes on to talk about, he believes that no, there's no material problem created by nature, or by technology that cannot be solved with more technology. Starvation, darkness, cold, heat, isolation, pandemics. You know, we invented indoor air, indoor heating, indoor air conditioning, the internet, vaccines. So that's the crux of the argument, right? Is that every time humanity has had a problem, technology has uh, evolved to meet that problem and mitigate it. And that even if technology creates another problem, the goal is to continuously condescend to those problems with more uh, developed, more advanced, uh, more innovative technology. So, Colborn, first of all, just very briefly—or not very briefly, but very um, initially—how much credence do you give this techno-optimist ideology? Like, what is it about this that like gets your goat?
1: Um, you know, there's things in this I like, and there's things in this I hate, and maybe it helps to kind of rewind it back to kind of our original thought from the current events talk. And I think what I was trying to express then is we were talking about, you know, this, a bit of this hope for Bitcoin, right? As Bitcoin as of the bellwether for cryptocurrency, what does it mean if Bitcoin goes up? Does kind of, you know, this enhanced wealth begin to trickle down into all these people that are creating art on different chains, does it move to different chains? So, you know, for me, when I, when I think of Bitcoin, what is Bitcoin for me? Bitcoin is the, antithesis to the U S dollarization of the world where that dollarization is emblematic of kind of a old oil to dollar trade where, you know, futures markets. So, so much of global finance is dependent on an oil to U S dollar. And so it it's, you know, a, it's a currency, that is outside the nation state and speaks to kind of the separation of, of money and state as we had a, a revolution around separating kind of church and state. Um, so largely that is what I think we're fighting for. I think techno optimism, it, it's hard to, you know, I I want to be optimistic, but mostly I think we need to, Use technology to accelerate through capitalism to move into an era of abundance and and more fair distribution. You know, Andreessen kind of goes in here to talk about the people that oppose this are communists, and there there has to be something past this because well, I'm gonna just stop there.
0: Well, Andreessen is a billionaire. He, he was in, involved in like early tech stuff, um, maybe involved with Elon Musk at the creation of PayPal. You know, there's a lot, the trouble with reading any manifesto is that if it's well written, it's frustratingly convincing. But the problem is that when you see something in a large document online, and this is a pretty large document, I think it was, I don't know, probably, um, in the five to 6,000 word range, it's a lot different. The arguments are very well thought out. And obviously they exist only within the vacuum of the document itself. But when you get down to like the empirical, like what's happening, boots on the ground, you start to see the flaws in it, right? And to me, the very easiest one to capture was, and this is a quote, we had a problem of isolation, so we invented the internet. And we, I've written quite a lot about that. Like the internet has only caused more isolation, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: right? It has not solved that problem. It may have solved a version of that problem, but it created another version of that problem. And I think what my problem with techno-optimism is that it seems to not understand technology's place in creating these feedback loops, where you know we have a, had a problem of heat, so we invented air conditioning, or we have a, we had a problem of cold, so we invented indoor heating, and both of those things are going to lead to it getting hotter and hotter and hotter, because there is more energy being used, and more technology is going to only increase the amount to which that effect is exacerbated. And I think that the idea that you have a point A you introduce technology and it brings you to a point B is not necessarily like that's just not how it works in every single circumstance. I think you can start at point A, introduce technology, and point A can become larger and more encapsulating of more things become more intense. Right. Um, you know, Another one, we had a problem of pandemic, so we invented vaccines. But does that lead to better viruses, stronger viruses, more capable viruses that are able to survive in different conditions? Um, I mean, do you think that there's truth to this idea that like problem A plus or times technology B equals solution C, or is it
1: not that simple? I mean, it's, it's never that simple, right? And we're, there. <laughs> he's stretching it out over such an abstract long-term that it is hard to really dig into the specifics. And at the same time, you know, us as individuals, uh, it's it is kind of fearful to just accept a lot of the the loss of control, right? And what it comes down to in my mind is he's he's saying basically you you abandon your own humanity and you align with kind of like the pure logic and you align with pure market theory and you get on board with that. And and in all of that, you effectively lose what it is that makes you human. Now, in the end, he comes back to it and says, well, we can't. Uh, and this is where I think it gets a bit convoluted. If we all move in line with technology, well, then where is the chaos of the person? And this is something that I've always been excited about and, and why crypto art was so exciting to me. And when we explore ideas of global monoculture and everything kind of coming together and everybody mean, well, well suddenly you are being told all of these things and you're being told what is right. And there's a template for how to do something. um, And it, it spreads online and you begin to lose free thought. You begin to lose the wildness. um, And that's where these, these things don't necessarily line up for me it just it feels so generalized to me. Um, and the older I get, the
0: more I've become wary of generalizations in general. You know, I, I think when I first started writing about crypto art, I wanted to separate artists, especially artists of quote unquote note into like certain categories or camps. But at the highest level of anything, whether it's technology, artists, you know, uh, powerful government officials, there are no archetypes. Each individual is its own. New archetype needs to be understood through its own the the channel of its own creation. Um, so, just looking at technology and saying, "Here's technology; it's one thing. It advances in one direction. We need to treat it in one way." Like, I don't know how you can look at something like air conditioning and say, "Okay, that's technology, and it needs to be treated the same way as atomic weapons, which is also technology." Right? This egalitarianism that there is one path forward and it needs to be applied to everything. I mean, I think that that's like the dogma that has crippled capitalism. It's the dogma that crippled communism. It's like the adherence to the dogma itself, the adherence to the one underlying truth is never going to get anybody anywhere because in no respect can life at a high or complex level be truly understood with single statement dogma.
1: Well, and just look at how all of this is written. You know, it's it's one line break, one line break, one line break. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that works very well for ADHD rattled internet minds. But at the end of the day, there isn't really much substance there, you know, and all yeah. of this empiricism that's being presented, it doesn't really exist. Yeah. Uh, so, So I think you're right. It tends, it flattens, it flattens a lot of it, and it really kind of devoids and strips the idea of collective humanity.
0: Yeah, but but it, it worries me too, because I think that this techno-optimism is the kind, especially at the levels of technology that I think are the most frightening to me, whether it's weapons technology or like AI technology, where it's just, I think the powerful people who are creating these technologies are kind of aligned on the techno-optimist camp of like, no, no regulation no mitigation, just let us go, let us push forward as far as possible. I mean, going back to the isolation point, I think the problem with the internet is that it was introduced to a population that did not get adequate time to adjust to it. It was evolving faster than we could evolve to it. And so now we're in possession of tools that we don't know really how to use and which we don't understand the effects they have on us and our, our, our neighbors and our relationships. Um, and I love Derek Thompson, um, who's a writer for the Atlantic and he has a podcast called played English. And he talked about uh, on an episode, like the way that the internet isolates us. And I included that in an essay I was writing on the metaverse. Um, and it just seems that we have, taken this technology, we have made it so universal. We've made it so integral to every interaction, to every business, um, to all aspects of our lives. And only after that complete amoeba-like absorption of this technology was complete, are we able to reckon with what that's doing to us. And that's my fear with techno-optimism in general, is that we're just going to be evolving so quickly. Another one of the points that Andreessen makes is that human civilization looked pretty similar in 1830, say, to how it looked 6,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago. Once we invented agriculture, society kind of looked pretty much the same. You could take you know, an ancient Egyptian and drop them in uh, you know, the colonial United States, and they would be shocked, but they would get it pretty quickly. And then starting in the mid-1800s, there's this exponential increase in how complex technology becomes and how different our lives become and how quickly it becomes different. And, you know, I think we think that we're on the upper end of this exponential curve, but what if we're only on like the beginning of that curve and just gets quicker and quicker and more and more deeply ingrained in our lives in ways we can't quite uh, comprehend as it's happening. And that scares me, too, because the people who are making that technology are also not aware of its effects on us. Right. The social media titans who were coming out with, you know, Jack from Twitter and Zuckerberg with Facebook, they didn't know what the Internet did to people when people used it all the time when they came out with technologies that were designed to have people use them all the time.
1: It's, it's the same with Sam Altman and OpenAI having kind of his Robert Oppenheimer moment, right? You know, we don't know what unleashing the, the AI will do, but I'm going to be the one who's going to do it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so we're just going to find out. And you're, you're right. The speed of acceleration, you know, we could think we're in a vertical, but really we could just be here about to really hit it.
0: Which yeah, good, bad, who knows? That's the problem.
1: Is that right. And everybody is is kind of forced into the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Right? You you as a as global citizens, as people that have access to all of this information and thinking about all of these things, uh, you know, it is it is a luxury to be able to participate. And that's also where I worry when he says that. Um, You know, technology doesn't recognize race, gender, creed, economic status. Anybody with a computer anywhere can plug in and contribute. It's not exactly true.
0: No, it's fucking bullshit because, like, we know that AI, for example, is primed to recognize white people better than black people and draw certain stereotypical depictions of Westerners when given you know, a lack of choice or a lack of specificity in how to create somebody. And we know that because we have empirical data. And also, if you've ever used this technology, if you just want it to create a person, it's going to create a white person. And that white person is going to be dressed in Western fashion. So technology is made by those who make it, who
1: are usually white, well-educated and male Westerners. And the manifesto reads exactly like that, right? And all of the biases from this are being imported into those models, which will be created and then we'll be stuck. We'll be stuck. Mm-hmm. Do you see a path to fixing that problem? And not from my current seat at the table. <laughs> <In> your seat <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> my seat on the podcast. Well,
0: unless you have like unless you have completely open developmental access to all people with all points of view, then you can't possibly keep a bias from entering the system. I mean, I think that's like a crypto art problem to bring this back to crypto art. Is that like you go to early crypto art without money and it's just interest in the thing. Well, you're still getting a subset of people who are very online, who are knowledgeable about cryptocurrency, um, which is going to skew wealthy and Western. And even when lots of people came in from all sorts of like backgrounds and um, diverse cultures, well, now we have money in the system and money is going to flow to things that money recognizes. And the money is coming from white, male, Western sources, it's going to glom on to white, male, Western recipients. And the feedback
1: loop continues. Yeah, the network effects are real. It's really, really tricky. And, and that's what crypto does so well, is it's immense network effects, right? Mm-hmm. It, it incentivizes it, and it cuts the speed of capitalism into to fractions and fractions of fractions of, of how money used to flow. Well,
0: let's um let's talk about crypto. Let's let's move this back to like crypto and crypto art and we'll get kind of further down that rabbit hole. But one of the things that Andreessen says, another quote is the center, abstracted away from both buyer and seller, knows nothing. Centralized planning is doomed to fail. The system of production and consumption is too complex. Decentralization harnesses complexity for the benefit of everyone. Centralization will starve you to death. And I read that and I was like, crypto, decentralization, hell yes. But As we've been talking about, it's so different to just say these things. Another thing to actually rage against the machine in a legitimate way, right? Crypto is the patron saint of decentralization. But I mean, just think about our discussion the other day about the Bitcoin spot ETF. If Grayscale and BlackRock, these enormous trillions and trillions of dollar um, strong hedge funds are now going to ingratiate themselves into crypto and purchase more and more of it, it will cease to be as decentralized as we want it to. It might be a decentralized system on its technological face, but it will be so controlled by centralized entities. So I I have a couple of questions for you off this,
1: but do you still see crypto and blockchain
0: decentralization as even possible?
1: I don't know. (laughs) I read, I read today that uh, because of, you know, uh, seizures from the Silk Road hack and the Bitfinex hack that the, the U S government is one of the largest holders of Bitcoin. Uh, So is decentralization even possible? I increasingly become discouraged by the prospects. So, you know, I feel like we've had enough time, um, to explore and experiment with systems and we've created our own system in, in ways that, uh, theoretically, yeah, it's, it sounds a lot better, but, but practically when decisions need to be made, it's much easier to rely on one person to make those decisions than it is to get the opinions of 100, 1,000, 10,000 people. Yeah. I
0: mean, this is a difficult question. So I apologize for even asking it because I'm not sure there is an answer, but like, what would it take for a decentralized system to exist long-term while safeguarding its decentralization?
1: So, I mean, is Bitcoin decentralized money? You know, what does that even mean? The safety and security of it being maintained by miners all over the world seems to be relatively and and fairly sharded. Right. So Bitcoin is, in my opinion, effectively decentralized. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then you move on to Ethereum. Well, it was the SEC's opinion that also Ethereum was sufficiently decentralized. Um, And then you start to move down the... Every, everywhere else. And, and that's when the questions really don't you, arise. Don't you say it. Don't you talk, <laughs> don't you talk about, about it. About everybody's favorite VC-backed shut-off coin. Um, <laughs> don't, don't insult here. <laughs> what, is, what is sufficient decentralization, right? I believe that was, you know, an SEC thing that they were looking at when they were determining whether these things were securities or not. And they said Bitcoin and Ethereum were sufficiently decentralized, but how does something get sufficiently decentralized? Well, generally centralized powers have to have to take it in and push it out. Um, and you know the, the fact of the matter is is that the larger pools of capital get, the more efficient allocators they are. So always when you know in a, in a system of capitalism, there are economies of scale, and we mm-hmm. see that the bigger something is, the more efficient it is, the more kind of entrenched necessary it is. Um, you know, is, is it, is it better that, you know, we, we can get Amazon same day delivery to anything that we want at our house? Um, and are the benefits of that efficiency really kind of scaling down to Amazon warehouse workers? Sure. Well, no, but I do like that. I can buy, you know, things online, although my
0: special exfoliant did not come in a timely manner. It took like three weeks and I was getting pretty pissed, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) Um, Walk me through the Bitcoin happening um, because you mentioned that the system becomes a better allocator the larger the system is. And people have talked about the happening. I don't totally understand it, um, but people, at least when it is proffered to me as a concept, I'm like, great, more Bitcoin that more people can buy. Not more total Bitcoin, but more ability to purchase that bitcoin am i do i have that completely wrong
1: yeah um awesome there's 21 million bitcoin hard-coded that will ever be created right now after what is it 10 11 years what year is my it? How time flies yeah that that bitcoin has uh been running you know every what is it three four years there's an halving of the bitcoin rewards. So all of these miners all around the world are competing to mine the next block of Bitcoin. Uh, once they do, they receive the block reward, which I think currently is four Bitcoin. My, and I believe the next happening, it reduces to around two Bitcoin. The, the, so there, so it literally is a happening. Think radioactive happening. Uh, I think it started 64, 32, 16, 8, 4. To one, eventually, this reduces to zero when all twenty-one million Bitcoin have been emitted, uh, and the idea at that point is these miners basically are making enough money off of the transaction fees that they will continue to to be in existence.
0: So, so does a theoretical happening do anything to increase the decentralization of Bitcoin, or does it discourage further decentralization because the rewards
1: for an independent actor to get involved are so have so. Theoretically, you know, all of these miners are competing and they have fixed costs, right? They have energy, they have hardware, they have things that they're paying for that is supposed to be covered by their mining of Bitcoin and selling it into the open market. So say every block, you know, for our mind, maybe they sell three to to pay their overhead. Maybe they keep one as profit. Well, now suddenly in a happening event, they only have two to sell. And they so all the the excess supply that the miners need to survive is is reduced in half. And this is kind of leaked. You know, this is this is the amount that is leaked into the market to pay kind of their operational costs. So theoretically, when supply is constrained and demand remains the same at the very least, then price increases. Great price increase. That's what we all want. We love that. Um, so historically, yeah. you know, six to nine months after a happening is kind of the time frame it takes for, you know, these new supply factors to take root. And that's when you start to see price begin to rise. And then people talk about rising price. So people ape in and then it's a momentum trade. And that's how you get mm-hmm. these, these historic bubbles in crypto.
0: It's like uh, the inverse effect of when that giant boat got caught in the Suez canal and everyone thought it was so funny until it disrupted global supply chains for like three days. And then nine months later, the price of eggs was like $10.
1: Right. And three it's months later you, you received your facial exfoliant.
0: Yeah. That's what fucking happened. It was on the Evergreen <laughs> stuck in the Suez canal. Okay. <laughs> Let's uh move on to something I want to spend some time on, which is um, one of Andreessen's points takes a node of information from somebody named David Friedman, who, quote, points out that people only do things for other people for three reasons, love, money or force. Love doesn't scale. So the economy can only run on money or force. And this is a big part of Andreessen's argument throughout the text as basically being like markets are vital. Free markets are vital because force is not a good um, motivator, but money is. Money is the ultimate motivator. But this is the only bit of information that we get on love as one of these three options is these three words. Love doesn't scale. So the economy can only run on money or force. No more explanation, no more discussion of that. And that just is such bullshit pessimism to me because maybe it's just the writer sensibility in me, but love is the only thing that scales equally. Force and money are the same thing. They conglomerate over time. And late stage capitalism is the perfect exemplification of that. We have an ever widening wealth gap. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer and the rich have access to force that the poor don't have. And the rich are thus able to accumulate more resources, et cetera, et cetera. We're seeing it every fucking day. So, and by the way, those two things justify each other, force and money justify the creation of each other. They don't just um, allow it. They incentivize it. So I want to talk about love scaling. Right, And I want to talk about expressiveness scaling because I think art's place in this is Mm. an extension of love in a sense. And Mm. that sounds kind of like, you know, crunchy granola-y. I know. But why do you create art? Well, it's not for the fucking money's sake. Anyone who is listening to this podcast and still engage in crypto art will know that there's not much money here and yet there's an ever-increasing amount of art. And I know as a writer of weird fiction that nobody wants to buy that I'm going to keep writing even though nobody's going to buy it. And nobody's forcing me to. So I don't know. I I would just love if you have any thoughts on this idea of love, not scaling an art's place in this. I would love to to hear it. It's an unwieldy topic.
1: Oh boy. Yeah. Look, that line really stood out to me too, because it is the first time where he addresses human emotion. He addresses it so naked negatively and so flippantly to say that love doesn't scale like maybe for you but like love doesn't scale i'm who so heard sorry him? who hurt Mark really, who heard you i'm so sorry he's just going through you a know? fucking
0: divorce he's like love doesn't scale only money or force are good motivators of people Fuck. so
1: poor guy you know i found you just coming from the crypto side i i found that you know the 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 money scales negatively Right. When money is involved, it attracts negative actors, which which brought me to the art. And just the connection with the artist was was the idea that, you know, there were experiences and, you know, born of an emotion that could be scaled. Right. And that for me was crypto art there. There is locked experiences, feelings, various parts of the world, things that need to be said and expressed and shared in this more ubiquitous manner and beginning to assign value to it is in this world is a way that things get seen, right? People could post this to Instagram. Nobody would care because Instagram can't sell it. Um, So, you know, we, with this new form of currency get to imbue the values in it and making a stand and saying that art is important and putting like the art inside of the currency is, is tremendous because it, it does speak to that soft power that these things are having, that they're, they're carrying this global culture that they speak to the totality of the whole. Uh, and is that love? I do believe it is love to, give it away in in that regard and have it be seen um and to share openly that is very vulnerable if you know if art isn't therapy and learning how to more fully love oneself and then to share it and and release it then i don't really know what what art is well i just want
0: to i'm going to sound like Brene brown for a second so forgive me but like Money attracts itself, force attracts itself, but love also attracts itself. And like the ability to love creates more love of all sorts of things. I mean, if you love another person, you begin to love the things that they love. And if you begin to love the things that they love, say like gangster movies, well, you're going to start to love Martin Scorsese. And if you love Martin Scorsese, you're going to love all the people that influenced Martin Scorsese, the um, Jean-Luc Godard's of the French New Wave Cinema, right? And it just, the more things you're passionate about, the better your life becomes, because the more things you're invested in. I've seen this. I, I it was sports. I mean, we, you know, have our bullshit conversations at the end of these podcasts about like the Celtics or fantasy football teams. But one of the great revelations of my adult life is that loving sports has allowed so much more love into my life. It's just another way to care about something. Right? It's totally ridiculous. It's totally meaningless. It's totally arbitrary. But the fact that you can love something so deeply, as I love the Celtics as anybody who knows me knows, that is so ridiculous and so arbitrary, but you feel that thing so intensely, it creates more love put into the world. I mean, I got my brother watching the Celtics now. I got my roommate watching the Celtics now. Love begets love. So the idea that it doesn't scale is ridiculous. It just requires more of a personal investment. Culture is love. And I mean that in the sense that think meme culture, right? These creation of these memes over the last 10, 15 years into its own kind of art form is not something that's being incentivized financially. It's not something that's being incentivized by force, but it's the collective love of X by all these people, not X, the platform, X, the platform sucks, but X, (laughs) Y, Z, X. And what you get at the center of all of this culture is the, beating, strange, you know, many faced nucleus where all of this love is kind of conglomerating. And it's in this culture that we perceive and we indoctrinate ourselves in and we pierce here and there. Um, But culture strikes me as interesting as well, because it can also be adequately decentralized. Uh, If there's one thing I know about culture, it's that it hates authority and it hates centralization and it will move away from it almost immediately. And for proof, just look at any buzzword that boomers begin to use right look at the way fucking randy zuckerberg ruined wag me um, (laughs) when she released that music video right culture does not like to be centralized it likes to be weird and fringe because it's created by people who love the weird and the fringe
1: Um,
0: i can say more but i'd love to stop and hear if you have thoughts
1: no, I, I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot as well, that, you know, I will just never be able probably to acclimate into a, a mainstream conversation. I will always be hurt by these feelings that uh, everything gets taken, repurposed and repackaged and, and in, into some commercial setting. And and that actually brings about a lot of um, brings about a lot of empathy. Mm. Talk to me about that. I, I I don't know what to say other than. All right, I'll I'm gonna tell you what
0: I'm thinking of first, and maybe that'll Please. help. If we're all being subjugated to the same infuriating and infernal forces, it forces us to recognize each other as beings who are a capable of suffering and b currently suffering and suffering in the same way that we are right? Misery loves company is a great idiom, but it also bears the truth that bearing suffering alone is tragic and bearing suffering with a group is celebratory. Um, maybe not celebrate. I mean, you know what I mean, right? It's like, there is a spiritual jubilation when you find somebody who is suffering the same way as you, who can see you and understand the things that you're feeling, right? I think that's what creates a lot of great relationships. Um, is that feeling of being seen and being known, um, and that's what culture allows. It allows for mm. multiple people who are in many different places to adopt a aesthetic or dialectic style that lets them be known in a way that matches their suffering. Right. Think about a, a, it's a really extreme example, but like the goth aesthetic, right, with the white makeup and the black lipstick and everything, right, like. It's so out of the norm, but it's so instantly recognizable. Mm. And two people who engage in that same culture in the same way, who come upon each other, they will not be ships passing in the night. They will stop and they will communicate because they recognize the same outpouring of the soul in the same way. Um, And so much of our crypto art world is based on this principle. You have the economic side that you can't get away from, but the other side of it, the side that everyone talks about as being more important, because I think to a lot of the artists and the people who love this stuff, it is more important is through this art, you can come to be known and come to be seen and you can come to express your influences. You can come to express your sensibilities and the people who collect this work and feel affected by it are sharing in that same experience. And that is a totally decentralized experience. It, again, is not related to money or force. It's only related to love and the, what love is, which is you know recognition of me in you. I'm really on one today.
1: I know. I, I, it was beautiful. I, look, it's really beautiful. I think um, like suffering as a basis for identity formation is one of the most powerful bonds that people can have. And that's what really brought these people together in crypto art in the beginning. Right We were suffering uh, inside the system, right? The system that you know you need to whatever work, do your nine to five, you need to uh, you need to be something. And this I think it also speaks to a lot of problems with what Andreessen is proposing because it, it misses the human, right? The, the humans are told that they need to go be one thing in capitalism, right? They need to go and be a specialist and that their specialism will be rewarded. Doctor, lawyer, engineer, you know, the more niche you get, the more likely you are to to accumulate, you know, tremendous wealth. But in this, he's arguing that, no, you, you can't be a specialist. You need to constantly change. Well, all of these platforms are designed to present yourself, to present your brand. You have to do it quickly and simply. So, you know, maybe the person who is pointing, putting, like presenting themselves now as the AI expert in 20 years wants to be something else. But because they presented themselves in this way, they're stuck in that. And and their identity formation has already happened and, happened, and their moment has come. And now they're outside of the zeitgeist of the technological movement and they have suddenly no place. So is, isn't that the fear, right? That technology moves too fast. We lose our individuality. We lose our humanity. People are not mobile enough and there isn't enough love that scales to actually care for and support each other in these periods of transition where the human is forced to change.
0: I think that this is a difficult, obviously it's a difficult topic, but we're both right and yet we're both wrong because we're thinking about love as this like important aspect to be maintained. And Andreessen is talking about like, like on it, like access to food and access to clean air, clean water, like these like really empirical things that are necessary to survival and technology might help alleviate that. And you kind of have to schism this conversation into like, what does suffering mean? Like, what does it mean to be depressed, but temperate or like joyful, but too hot, right? It's like, what problems are we trying to solve? And is it possible to solve these empirical problems in a way that does not put us in like spiritual mental jeopardy? So I I think that this may be, I'm going to try and land the plane here and it's going to be hard. So just bear with me to end suffering outwardly is not the way to end suffering. It just pushes the suffering further along when you have, I'm going to use the heating example because I think that it is easy for me to conceptualize, right? But if you start out with the problem, is it's too hot in here, I need it to be colder. Well, in a previous iteration of society where there is no way to deal with that heat, you simply learn to exist with the suffering that you have, right? And you commiserate with the people around you. And you, you know, come into the house after a day of work and you say, Scorch are out there, isn't it? And everyone says, absolutely uh you know it's why people talk about the weather it's why people talk about traffic Mm -hmm. it is these few Mm -hmm. remaining places where we are all engaged in suffering in the same way and Mm -hmm. we want to promote that and be known for that suffering in the same way and we're able to right but you start to use technology to do away with all of the universalized suffering that we would have and suffering starts to be very individualized, right? It starts to be, we're degrading in our own individual ways and we're isolated from people because we can no longer see their suffering because their suffering is so different than ours is. I am not advocating that we all need to be starving or, you know, sweating to death or freezing to death, etc. cetera. But in, in trying to solve every single outward physical problem of people, you are solving for those problems. But then people are just going to recede further into themselves. And because suffering is the natural human condition, we will invent new sufferings that are based on our anxieties or our depression, which are impossible to replicate in another person because they're completely reflective of our own individual histories. So we're no longer able to make those connections with people on the basis of our suffering. Our misery loves company, but our misery can't find company because technology is doing away with all the misery that we would share with others. And it's turning our misery inward on ourselves. And that feels spiritually devastating. And I think that that sounds highfalutin. I think that that sounds, even as I speak it, it sounds a little bit out there. But I think that like this crisis of individualism and this crisis of isolationism is so based in the fact that we can't connect to other people in anything other than surface ways, because all the ways we used to have to connect with people have been solved, at least in like the Western world, right? Like I live in a comfortable apartment here in Brooklyn, New York. I have very little in common with the rest of the people around me because my life in my little box is Mm -hmm. so specific. And the Mm -hmm. things that would once connect me to those people are gone, except for, you know, when it, when all the streets in Brooklyn are flooding suddenly you make those connections and there's a fucking ginkgo street on my block that drops its fruit and its fruit smells like vomit. And every time <laughs> I pass, it's true. It's the strangest thing. Yeah. But every time I pass that with that tree and someone is crossing the street beside me, we look at each other and we laugh because we're both experiencing the same unpleasant situation in the same way. And there's something that is healing about that. There's something that is startling about that. So I, I don't know. I, I My question to you, I guess is like, at what point is solving all these problems only doing more harm than good to the person that we are
1: underneath the skin suit? Well, we we, <laughs> uh, we we invent technology as soma for this existential despair, right? People might be alone at night in their New York City apartment, wondering what they should do, and instead of going out and meeting people, they turn on Netflix, right? Or you know, in immersing themselves in any sort of of physicality they choose to detach. It's it's obviously an American thing. Internet as an extension of what television was, just raw entertainment to distract the brain from, like, going into the body and experiencing the feeling of being human. And, you know, I think there's probably... Some lie, you know, he wants 50 billion people on the earth, but most of these developed nations aren't even like trending in birth rates to like repopulation level. So what is going on? Why is life, you know, if not like anecdotally, categorically getting more difficult for people, even though it's outwardly getting easier. And I mean, the idea that like you would have more
0: people on the earth and then we'd make more connections. Like we know that that's not how this works because people are more isolated than they've ever been, even though we have as many people on the earth as has ever been alive. Um, It's very frustrating. I mean, I'm going to, I I have to out myself as like a closet spiritualist, but like, you know, we are all having this spiritual journey that we are all on as human beings that have this fucking sentience. And when I look at these things like declining birth rates, it's not, it doesn't, to me, I don't read it a a economic factors necessarily into that. That's a part of it, but it is these personalized, spiritual, mental kinds of malaise and disinterest and uh, that I think are really more prominent. I will say somebody called my attention to the fact that we're never bored anymore in the place of boredom, we turn on our phones and we're not bored or we turn on X and we're not bored. And, uh, I listen to podcasts when I walk around and instead of like thinking about things, I'm just listening to things and I'm, I'm not bored and my brain isn't afforded to wander. Let's, uh, let's finish off with this last point that I wanted to make sure we got to, this is something that you wrote in the notes for this, which is a Renaissance after the dark ages. Are we heading there? And I want to know why that was your takeaway, at least for a moment, from this techno-optimist manifesto.
1: It has to do with a return to individuality, right? What we were talking about it before that there is going to we seem to be bifurcating on our evolution, right? And there were there will those that will choose a transhuman route, or there will those that will be afforded the luxury of a transhumanist route, in which we continue to carry more powerful processors augmented whatever to to you know continue this experience that we're on and those that will opt out it it turns from techno optimist to techno elitist very quickly and that for me is when things get very dark and whereas he posits that UBI would be something in which people are effectively farmed no for me this techno elitist mentality operating under the guise of some sort of techno optimism is really ultimately where people get farmed as they are just providing, you know, data, or they Mm. are considered to almost be lesser than some sort of AI or non enhanced uh, human. So, you know, from this, it will be interesting to see the ways in which people do begin to express themselves and and alleviate suffering you know i hope people are able to find the necessary creative outlets or the increased ways in which they can authentically express themselves in all of this
0: and achieve interpersonal connection i i think it's i think it's i was gonna say i think it's guaranteed but i'm gonna walk that back and say i think it's likely because and we spoke about this just before we got on but AI is the sea change. AI is the end game of the internet, of all of this data, of all of this culture, being plugged into a thing that is going to become exponentially more advanced. And I personally, I'm fucking out. I don't want more shit. I'm done with shit. I fucking hate the social medias I have. I hate being on the technology that I'm on. I'm happiest when I'm out for a walk and not connected to my phone. I think most people feel similarly and the more dangerous this gets and the more creepy it gets and the more difficult it is to elude it. I am not of the opinion that we will live in a society like her, that movie, the spike Johns movie where everyone is talking to their AI assistant all the time. I think a lot of people are going to just turn off. Totally. They're going to say this thing is no longer for me and I'm out. And I think they will be met with open arms from a lot of other people who say the same thing. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but I think that's where we're going. I think AI gets too scary. I think technology gets too ingratiated in our lives. I think it's too unwieldy to navigate. And a lot of people are just like, "I'm out."
1: Yeah, I'm gonna go. People, you know. I'm, I'm sick of it. You know, in crypto bull market in the smallest space in the world. It's really fucking difficult to compete online in real time against however many of your peers and you don't know like the comparative advantages and disadvantages or all sorts of tricks that that people have from these legacy systems it's it's the game is rigged and it mm-hmm. most certainly is not rigged in your favor but
0: we find ways to go on and i will say one of the my favorite parts about this job, which is very much about competing and very much about putting out content and very much about getting eyeballs in one way or another. My favorite part is just talking to you, talking to people on this podcast, having these conversations and actually just having some fucking connection. And, uh, when we will find ways to continue to do that, because if the techno optimists take over, which they seem to be hell bent on doing, and they certainly have the resources to do so, they are going to force us to fend for ourselves. And yes, it will be temperate. And yes, God willing, we will have affordable food to eat, but we'll
1: become the own masters of our suffering and we'll go looking for ways to alleviate it. So maybe that's where we win. You know, Maybe we go and take what they don't want. They don't want love to scale. Maybe we can make love scale.
0: Make love, not technology. <laughs> um I do want to just bring up one more thing real quick, which is that the uh the manifesto ends with the patron saints of techno optimism, like people you should read yeah. and uh out of fifty six people, six of them were women, and uh oh you know i was gonna if
1: you couldn't if i you just
0: just thought that was you know if you couldn't predict it beforehand the the data i think that- there's
1: only one woman quoted in the entire thing. he always goes back to these these quotes from people I think there's only one. A uh, woman, and that woman is Carrie Fisher, who I believe played Princess Leia. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Carrie Fisher. Yeah, played Princess
1: Leia. Rest in peace to the goat. So when you read this, when you read this, you already understand the bias. You already understand the bias that's coming. Yeah, maybe we buried the lead here. That six of the
0: fifty-six patron saints of techno-optimism are women. Yeah, so they really I- probably <laughs> did go far and wide to find <laughs> women who would agree with their very rich, very white, very male, very Western fucking bullshit.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, just just to cap it, you know, we'll take we'll go back to the macro. Uh, You know, when he raged against kind of like the sustainable development goals, which is the only thing in the U.N.'s history in which every single nation worked together to come and ratify together the sustainable development goals. Like the only thing that has ever been unanimously approved in the history of the U.N., um, when he declares that the enemy uh, that, that really made me pause because this is not for everybody. You know, this is this is for Andreessen Horowitz. This is for A16Z. This is a self-serving manifesto of what, you know, this organization is, is going to move forward and accomplish.
0: At least it's honest. But I guess when you At have $1.8 $1. $1. billion, dollars, you become honest and delusional. Um, this was a fun conversation. It was wide-ranging, and I'm not sure that I made any of the points that I thought in my head I was making as I was speaking them. But I think that's a marker of a good conversation. Uh, Coburn, let's get out of here. Do you have anything you want to say to uh, the folks listening before we get out?
1: No, they're always too fast, man. I'm really grateful for the time and for your thoughts.
0: Yeah, me too. Yeah. Thank you all very much for listening. Um, would love to know your thoughts. Please let us know what you think of this episode, especially as like we got pretty weird with it. If you liked our conversation or like anything, the things that we're doing, you can follow or subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or Apple podcasts, or leave us a five-star review. All those things would be super. Uh, If you want to hear more kind of like thoughts, random stuff, we put out a column every week. You can find us on Substack at museumofcrypto.substack.com. We're at museumofcrypto on Twitter. I will not call it its other name. Uh, I simply refuse. Uh, And you should definitely let us know what you think um, because this is a a conversation we were really excited to have and uh, I'd love to know what you guys all thought of it. So thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Colborne, for having a great time with me. Um, And we'll be back with uh, new current events next Tuesday. Uh, You'll probably be listening to this on a Friday. So a couple more days and we'll be right back with you. So thank you very much, everyone. Have a lovely rest of your day and uh, we really appreciate you. Bye, everybody. This episode was edited and produced by me, Max Cohen. A huge thanks to Coborn, as always, for being my trusty co-host. A big thanks to Julian Brangold for composing the intro music. And a big thanks to Dayfox for composing our cold open music. And most of all, thank you for being here with us. We hope to see you again real soon on another episode of the Mocha Live podcast.